So this morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4. And so if you have a Bible, please open up to Genesis chapter 4. If you're in need of a Bible, we have some available back at our communion table. You may get up and grab one of those if that is more convenient for you. We encourage everyone to have the Word of God open in their lap as we are going to be referencing it throughout our message uh, this morning. We will have some scriptures up on the screen, um, but we will ask that you have Genesis chapter 4 open in front of you. So before we get started in Genesis chapter 4, many of you are familiar with me, but some of you may not. And so a little bit of background on me. Again, my name is Sam Kramer. You've probably seen me with my family here, Michaeline, our two daughters, Evelyn and Josephine, and our youngest son, Isaac. I'll let you guess which one is being more of a handful for us in our household. Yes, it is our son. Um, And here I was asking for a son, which we love him, but there was this debate of what would be better, all girls or all boys. And funny thing is, my wife comes from a family of all girls, and I come from a family of all boys. So naturally, we're each rooting for our own team. But I don't know why I thought it would be a good idea to have boys. Boys are a lot of work. You know, growing up with brothers, I had four older brothers. And let's just say we were not always kind to one another. You know, and being the youngest of the four, you can imagine who got picked on the most. And it's difficult being the youngest. Any, anybody the youngest sibling in the room besides just me? Yes? Yeah, it can be difficult being the youngest because we can't, we can't overpower our siblings. We're not stronger than them. We're not faster than them. So you know what we have to do? We have to be smarter than them. And I can remember trying to get my revenge upon my brothers, all the ways that they would tease me and make fun of me and and pick on me. And I can remember one moment which, even though I did something wrong, I'm still a little proud of how clever it was. And I'm going to share that with you this morning. (laughs) Being the younger brother, again, I had to be a little clever. And I remember my brother Bobby, we shared a room, and he had been nagging me all day, pestering me all day, abusing me all day. And I plotted to get back at him. But the thing was, I had to wait. I waited, and I waited, and I waited until we were supposed to be in our rooms and going to bed. And I gave it about a good five minutes of darkness and quiet before I yelled out, Ow, Bobby! He didn't do anything. And so he's like, what? What's going on? And my dad came in, and I used the power and authority and strength of my dad to get my revenge on my brother. See, the little brothers, we have to be smarter because we're not stronger. You know, and this was something that we saw all the time in our household. Brothers would fight. I would come up with these silly ways of getting back at my brother. They would use their power and their force against me. And I just thought that was normal, that this is the way things were supposed to be, that brothers fight. And I can remember going to school and meeting some brothers, twin brothers, actually, and just thought it was the weirdest thing in the world that they didn't fight. In fact, they they acted like friends most of the time. They were on the same team together, same classes. They were always together at lunch. And I'm just like, this does not make any sense. How can brothers actually be friends with one another? And as I was reading this passage, I was confronted with the idea that normal was not my experience, or at least what should have been normal was not my experience. We sometimes get so accustomed to the brokenness of this world that brothers fight. But how should things actually be? Brothers should be best friends. And I saw that in some relationships, and it made me wonder, it made me think. And it confronts me with this question or this reality that things are not as they're supposed to be, that we live in a broken world where things are not what they should be. 
And this story that we're going to read in Genesis chapter 4 is about two brothers. And unfortunately, it's about brokenness. The way things should not be. But we also see hope in this passage as well of what God is doing to fix a broken world. And so as we look at this story of two famous brothers, Cain and Abel, I want us to keep in mind that the world is not as it should be. Specifically, our first point is going to be because we do not worship like we should. And secondly, because we do not treat others like we should. But we're going to give thanks to God because our third point is that God does not punish us as he should. And so let us read the word of the Lord together. Genesis chapter 1, or sorry, Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I'll read the entire passage in its entirety. If you would, sorry, please stand for the reading of God's word as you're able. Verse 1 says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, you will, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. This is the word of the Lord this morning. You may be seated. And so we are jumping into the book of Genesis. We're jumping into chapter 4. It's worth mentioning what happens in chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see God creating everything by speaking it into existence and intimately fashioning Adam and Eve in his image and his likeness to be with him, to be a un in a unique relationship with him. But as you know, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are deceived. They disobey God, having been tempted by Satan as the serpent, and sin enters the world. And they are cast out from the presence of God, cast out of the Garden of Eden, and are now living in a cursed and broken world. Genesis chapter 4 picks up. Adam and Eve beget two children, Cain and 
Abel. And we begin to see some of the consequences of sin in the lives of the sons of Adam and Eve. That this world that was once perfect is now filled with brokenness, and that brokenness is specifically on display here in this family between these brothers, but also in the interaction between one of these brothers and the Lord as well. And so we want to point out a couple elements of the brokenness that we see in this passage. That the world is not as it should be because we do not worship as we should. Why did God have regard for one of the offerings of these sons and not the other? This is a question that, that we are being begged to answer when looking at this passage. Why is it that God was pleased to accept the offering that Abel brought but not Cain? Many theologians have argued this. If you pick up a commentary, you may find uh, a few explanations. Not all of them are in agreement, but I'm going to give you what I think is the best explanation as I have studied the scriptures. We see in, verse, in the latter half of verse 4 and going into verse 5 that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, and, but Cain and his offering he had no regard. And so let us look specifically at the offerings of these two brothers. First, we see Cain's offering. Cain's offering was an offering of the fruits of the ground. He was a keeper of the ground. He, he worked the ground and was in charge probably of the agriculture of this family. And so in some ways, it seems fitting that if this was his responsibility, if this was his occupation, if this was his possession, this is what he brought to the Lord, an offering of maybe fruit and vegetables. Abel's offering, on the other hand, as a keeper of sheep, was to bring a slaughtered animal And so why does God accept one and not the other? The most common explanation that you may come across in this passage is that one is a blood sacrifice and the other is not. And so clearly, knowing what the Old Testament teaches and uh, puts into our minds over and over that there cannot be forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. There's a whole sacrificial system that's going to come later in the book of Leviticus that'll describe these things. However, there in that same sacrificial system, is allowances for the types of offering that Cain brought. Look with me at Leviticus chapter 5, verse 7. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 7 says this, But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And so there's provision in God's sacrificial system, that if you do not have a lamb, then you can bring two birds, two turtle doves or two pigeons. Now look with me at Leviticus chapter 5, verse 11. Verse 11 says, But if you cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for sin that he has committed a tenth of an epah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall not put oil on it, and, it shall, and he shall not put any frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. So here's an example of an offering that is not a sacrifice, but of the ground. And so if God had made provision later in a sacrificial system, is the issue with Cain's offering what he brought? I don't think it is. It's not what he brought, but as we'll come to find out, the attitude in which he brought it. Now, if we look at the sacrifice of Abel, 
you'll notice that there are some more details shared about his sacrifice than with Cain. Cain's sacrifice is mentioned generically, that he brought an offering in verse 3 of the fruit of the ground. But if you look at verse 4, Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. To bring the firstborn was to bring the most highly prized, the most valuable, the most perfect in the flock. As Abel chose his offering for the Lord, he did not choose what was easy. He chose what was most valuable, and he gave that back to the Lord, the firstborn and of the fat portions. And so what I see here is a difference in attitude. The Lord makes provision for both types of offerings in his sacrificial system. But the difference in this instance between these two brothers is the attitude in which they brought it. Cain's offering, generically, fruit of the ground. Doesn't say first fruits, just of the fruit of the ground. Maybe it wasn't the best. Maybe it was the fruit that already was blemished, that didn't look the most enjoyable for him, so he'll give that to the Lord. I think that is the connotation here. I think the best commentary on the reason why God had regard for one offering and not the other doesn't, isn't in some sort of theological journal or from some Old Testament scholar. I think the best commentary comes from Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 11, verse 4. To me, the author of Hebrews settles it. He says, Abel's offering was accepted because it was offered in faith. The New Testament reveals what was lacking in Cain's offering was faith, was a genuine submission and love and regard for the Lord. He did all the right things in the outward experience, but had the wrong condition in his heart as he did that. And so what separated Abel from Cain was the heart of the matter, not what was physically brought. Cain could have done right. He could have done the right thing. In fact, I think he did do the right thing, but with the wrong attitude, making all of it wrong. And this is what I want us to hear this morning, that our attitudes matter. Our position inwardly before the Lord matters. We can do all the right things externally and still be lacking the inward quality needed to make them acceptable before the Lord. And this is true in faith, but this is also true in life, right? We teach our kids all the time that it's not just doing the right things, it's the attitude that you have when you do it, right? Your kid could be obedient and take out the trash, but it's very different when they have a pep in their step and take out the trash versus where it looks like they can barely walk and they're doing it. The attitude almost sours the entire thing. You know, if I were to go out and I were to surprise my wife with a fine piece of jewelry, spending far more than I probably should because I wanted to give her a gift, I could still spoil that gift with a bad attitude. Giving an extravagant gift of great value, but yet holding it over her and saying, now you must do something for me in return. I need an equal or greater gift in return and presume upon her that she would treat me this way or get me this, this thing or allow me to go do this or go do that. I could do it begrudgingly. While the gift may be of great expense, if I make it known that, man, this costs a lot, I don't know, we might not be able to pay the bills this week, you know, maybe we should take it back, but you know what, you could just keep it. What is that going to do to her experience and her enjoyment of that gift? It's going to make the gift almost worthless in her eyes. If it was so much trouble 
for you to get that fine piece of jewelry for me. And I wish you wouldn't have brought it in the first place. And in a similar way, this is how the Lord probably looked at the offering of Cain. What he brought of the fruit of the ground, but his attitude was to the point that the Lord responds and, and says, I almost wish that you wouldn't have even brought it because your attitude has soured the whole experience. And this is something that happens over and over in Scripture that our attitudes often spoil what should be a good gift or a good act of service, but is made rotten because of it. So just as a good present could be ruined by a bad attitude, so also good acts of worship can be ruined by a bad attitude. And this is the uniqueness of Christianity. Hebrews instructs us on matters of faith in this regard. In chapter 11, I'll point you to verse 6. It says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. If you do all the right things, but you lack faith and trust in God, and yes, specifically Jesus, all your good acts of worship don't count. God doesn't look at them and have regard for them because you are not united with him in faith. Hosea 6.6 6 says this, the Lord speaks and he says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God would have been more pleased with Cain had he not brought anything but instead brought faith alone. And when we try to bring these gifts, when we try to do all the outward external things to please God, you know what it looks like? Filthy rags. Isaiah 64.4 says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. When we bring our good deeds before the Lord, Without faith, he sees them as filthy rags. That that is as righteous and as clean as we can be on our own. Worship is only good if we do it out of faith and love for the God that we worship. And so what sort of things might we do to have God regard us apart from faith? What are we relying on other than our personal faith in Jesus. Many of us may simply rely on the fact that we go to church just as we should. That being in a place like this, week after week on a Sunday morning, that surely the Lord will have regard for me and my worship if I'm here in this place with these people. But if we're not united by the Lord in faith, he does not regard that offering. Maybe it's through our generosity that if we give money to good causes, to the start of a new church or some sort of Christian parachurch ministry that is going to do the work of the Lord, that the Lord would have regard for us because of our generosity. But if we do it apart from faith, the Lord has no regard. Maybe we do acts of service to benefit others. But if we do it without faith, the Lord has no regard all these things, the best works that we can muster are filthy rags apart from faith.
And so you know what you're supposed to do, but are you doing it with the right attitude? Are you doing it with the right position? Have you been united in Christ in faith so that when God does see these acts of, of worship, your attendance at church, your, your generosity on display, your reading of your Bible, your praying, your meditating on God's word, your serving, when you do those things in faith, then yes, he regards them. He accepts them. We are like Abel, and we're able to worship the God because we have been united to him in Christ through faith. We often know what we're supposed to do, but we lack the inward heart condition. And so, as a means of application, one of my favorite verses in Scripture is actually Matthew 5, verse 16. This is Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount talking about our good deeds and what they should actually do. Matthew 5, 16, it says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that, they may be, so that they may see your good works and give glory to who? To your Father who is in heaven. Who was Cain trying to receive glory for as he made his offering? Because he didn't do it in faith. The glory that he was seeking was not the glory of the Lord, but the glory of Cain. He tried to rob the Lord of his glory. And so the Lord has no regard for that kind of worship or those kinds of offerings. But when we serve and we do these things and we do them in faith and they point back to the good father that we are serving and his son and they're filled with his spirit, then we are worshiping God as we should by faith. And so pay attention to yourself. Don't seek to earn something from God by what you offer him through your acts of worship. Don't seek to be more liked or more blessed, but an act of true service, an act of true worship is for the Lord and to bring glory to his name. And so this is just one example from this scripture of the brokenness that we see in this world, that we do not worship God as we should. We sometimes seek to receive the glory and honor ourselves from God instead of directing it back to him. And so secondly, in this passage, not only do we see failed worship with a wrong attitude apart from faith, but we also see that we do not treat others as we should. That here is a story of fratricide, brothers killing brothers. Not just hypothetical brothers, actually blood-related brothers. The first two sons to be born of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the older slaughters the younger. The world is not as it should be. Brokenness is already making itself more and more evident. The consequences of sin are being put on display. We do not treat others as we should. Because as I've stated before, brothers are supposed to get along. They're not supposed to be mean towards one another. They're not supposed to mistreat each other. But I will tell you again from my own experience that that is not often the case. I shared one instance of what I did to my brothers, but more often there's story after story of older brothers hurting and oppressing or embarrassing or inflicting pain on their younger siblings. I'm living proof of that. I can remember one way in particular that my brother um, really scared me as a young kid. I mean, I was grade school. I couldn't tell you exactly how old I was, maybe fourth, third grade, something around there. But we had these 
these air-compressed cans, you know, the kind used to clean keyboards and things of that nature. And I don't know where he got this idea. Maybe some of these things are technically true, but he got it into my head that if he took that air nozzle and got it close enough to my skin and sprayed it, that he would put a bubble in my vein. And once that bubble got to my heart, I would die. And of course, that's exactly what he did. And so for the rest of the afternoon, I'm like just trying to pop the bubble wherever it may be, just squeezing parts of my body because I was convinced I was going to die. And I lived in that fear. Yeah, many of you, oh, I know, it's awful. Brothers are mean. I lived in that fear for an entire day until my dad's like, your brother's an idiot. I'm going to go talk to him. I said, okay, dad, thank you. Right? Praise the Lord for good fathers. So brothers do terrible things to one another. Now, as terrible as that story may be, you may be looking at that, well, clearly it wasn't as bad as what happens here. Well, let us look more closely at that. You know, all those sins that I talked about in my growing up, whether it's the blood bubble story, whether it's making fun of the way you talk or doing mean actions, all those sins are harmful. But Cain's sin was deadly. He murdered his brother. And so how should brothers treat one another? We've talked about this. We should be loving. We should be kind. And particularly, older brothers should be protective of younger brothers. But Cain already rejects that concept Right After sin had tempted him and he had given in to sin and he had acted in jealousy and anger towards his brother and murdered him in the field, God calls out to Cain. And we see in verse 9, when God, when God calls out to Cain, he says, where is Abel your brother? And what is Cain's response? Like any older brother who knows he's in trouble, I don't know. It's literally what it says, I don't know. But then he goes so far as to be a little bit more audacious, a little more rebellious before the Lord. And he says, am I my brother's keeper? And as I read this story, each and every time, now being a parent and having watched, you know, older sisters and expectations and all that sort of stuff, I just want to scream at Cain through this text, yes, you are. Your responsibility as an older brother is to be the protector Right? All of us in here who have kids or who are older brothers are like, yeah, that is the expectation in our household, that there's more responsibility placed upon the older one. So he says, am I my brother's keeper? I would say, absolutely. And so why does Cain kill his brother? Clearly it's over jealousy, it's over anger. And it's important that we look at how sin can really overtake us in moments and cause us to do things that we honestly didn't think we were capable of. I don't think when Cain woke up that morning that he knew or was planning to murder his brother. But instead, sin grew, sin festered, he became enslaved to it, it became his master, and he acted upon it. Look with me at verse 7. God warns Cain. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Clearly, Cain did not heed that warning. He did not resist sin. And he let sin rule over him instead of him ruling over it. 
we are worse than we want to believe at times. Sin is more powerful a foe than we want to admit. It is a strong master. And you and I have been enslaved to that master. And it's easy to want to return and go back to that when we're filled with anger, when we're filled with jealousy. And you, have may, you may have found moments in your life where you have done things that looking back, even just moments afterwards, you could not believe that you did that. Where did that come from? Well, I'll tell you where that came from. Sin was crouching at the door. Its desire was for you. And it ruled over you. Clearly what Cain did was awful. As bad as maybe it could really get, and we may seek to comfort ourselves that at least I'm not guilty of the sin of Cain. I've not murdered my brother. In fact, I haven't murdered anybody. I'm doing such a great job in that regard. But what does Jesus have to say? Matthew chapter 5. As Jesus taught on this very thing, the commandment not to murder. Matthew 5, verses 21 through 22. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. See, we may have not committed the outward act of murder, but we've all had murderous intent in our heart as we've hated a brother or sister or person. We may have not have committed the sin outwardly, but the condition of your heart is one of murderous intent. And so you and I have far more in common with Cain than we are comfortable to admit. If you have ever uttered the words, I hate you, you're liable to judgment. Maybe you've said it to a brother or sister as you've grown up. I know I have. Maybe you've said it to a friend or another family member. Maybe you've spoken that way to a coworker or a boss. I hate them. Maybe you've said it about a fellow brother or sister in Christ whom Jesus shed his blood for. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. How is it that we could have the ability to rule over such a powerful force as sin? We can't. Not on our own. But through Christ, we are more than conquerors. The world is not as it should be. We should be closest with our siblings. Even more, we should be the closest with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet we are so often guilty of harboring the same hate in our heart that we see here in this passage. Let us turn from that. Let us look to the Lord, ask for his equipping power through his spirit, through his spirit to not let sin rule over us, but to live in the newness of life to not submit to this old master of sin, but to turn to our new master and be slaves of Christ and experience the new and eternal life that we have in him. But the only way we can do that is if we acknowledge our condition before the Lord. 
that we do have these murderous hearts, these sinful hearts. And just as you can do the right thing with the wrong attitude and it spoils it, so too you could resist things like not murdering somebody but having hateful intent towards your heart and still be liable. Your heart is what God is most concerned with. And that is why he's renewing you from the inside out through his spirit when we believe in Jesus. So the world is broken. It's not as it should be. We don't worship as we should. We don't treat others as we should. But praise be to God that he doesn't respond as he should. Instead of bringing judgment and consequence for our sin, so often his first response, as we've heard in this service over and over, is to be gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we see this even with someone like Cain, who murdered his brother, that I see a gracious response, not without consequence, but nevertheless full of grace. What should have happened to Cain? in response to killing his brother. If we look over in chapter five, God is going to institute that if you take a life, your life will be taken as consequence. We read in um, books like Exodus chapter 21, verse 23 through 24, this idea, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. You shall do what is fair. What you do to others should be done to you. And God would be fair and just in operating this way, would he not? Could Cain really cry this is an injustice if his life was taken from him as punishment for taking the life of his brother? No. And yet Cain still calls out that my punishment is too great when God gives what is actually a gracious response. God gives a surprising amount of grace and protection over Cain in response to this sin. Look at this. Verse 10 says, And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And here comes his punishment. Verse 11, And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Remember, he was a worker of the ground. And so now his work and harvesting and growing fruit is going to be all the more cursed, all the more arduous. Verse 12, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Your family that you were meant to have close relationship with, now you're going to be a fugitive. And Cain cries out in verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And here the Lord responds with grace in verse 15. The Lord said to him, not so. Cain was fearful that those would come and seek him out and kill him, but God says, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. There's some sort of mysterious mark. We have no idea what it is, what it may look like. But if you saw Cain at this moment in time, you would know that's Cain. And the Lord says he's off limits. He is protected from anybody seeking vengeance or justice for what he has done. But the Lord ultimately will reserve judgment in this matter. But there's grace and protection there 
for Cain. And it's interesting. I think Cain has experienced some of the same grace that his father experienced when his father was ruled over by sin. Notice that when Adam sinned, the ground was cursed and his work became harder. When Cain sinned, the ground was cursed and his work became harder. They were both banished from fellowship with the Lord and Cain with his own family. But yet both were, giving, were given by God protection. That with Adam, God sealed off the garden and the tree of life that Adam would not live forever separated from God. He put a guard there to guard that tree. That's a form of God's grace. And in the same way, God protected Cain with a mark on his body from anybody coming and exacting justice or vengeance on him for what he had done. God was gracious, and God did not take either of their lives, even though the consequence for sin is death. He offered grace to both. Not without consequence. Both experienced consequence of their sin, but God is consistent in offering his mercy. And so we ought to give thanks to God that he does not respond to our sins as he ought to, because you and I are sinners, just like Adam, just like Cain, just like everybody that we read about in Scripture apart from Christ. We are sinners, deserving of God's wrath and God's judgment, but God instead responds with grace. Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He does not but by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on children. God does judge sin, but his default position is to first offer grace. I'm curious what this mark that Cain had. Maybe we'll be able to ask Lord, the Lord someday. But he was protected by a mark. And did you know that you too, as someone who believes in Jesus, are protected by a mark? Not on your own body, but the marks that were put on the body of our Savior, Jesus Christ. His nail-pierced hands, which are still there in his resurrection body. His nail-pierced feet. When the Lord or anybody sees those marks on Christ's body, they know that you are untouchable. Because your punishment for your sin was paid for in his, in his flesh on the cross on your behalf. Instead of the blood of Abel calling out to the Lord, guilty, we have the blood of Christ calling out to the Lord, righteous. God is gracious. God is kind. God is good. And so, as we review, the world is not as it should be. We encounter all kinds of brokenness, we do not worship God as we should. We may do the right actions, but lack the inward condition of our heart that is necessary for God to have regard for our offering. And we definitely do not treat others as we should. We sin against one another. We harbor hate towards one another. But yet God does not respond like we would expect, like we would think is right. Instead, he has chosen to act in his mercy and his grace and his steadfast love and kindness because what Christ has done. And praise be to God for that. 
So while this world is broken, we are reminded that God is making all things new. And he's doing that through the gospel by winning a people unto himself that we may be with him forever because he will come to judge sin and he will be right and just in the way that he does that. But until that time, he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And so let us unite ourselves to him in faith through Christ that we may worship him freely, that he will regard our offering of faith and service and love and that we may be ready when he comes again to take this broken world and make it into a new and perfect world once again. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, this passage and our life experience tell us over and over and over again that we live in a broken and fallen world. Lord, we see that brokenness all around us. Lord, and if we're honest, we see that brokenness in us, in our own sinful flesh. Lord, help us to rule over sin, not because we are strong enough, but because you and your spirit dwell within us. And you say that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, greater than the master of sin. Lord, help us not to worship you externally, Lord, but inwardly as well, united to you by faith, that you may regard our worship as acceptable and good and pleasing. And so, Lord, receive what worship we have planned in this service as we prepare to close. And would you be lifted up, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.